Praise the name of the Lord. All right. Hello, everybody. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord with you. Uh, I want to thank Sister Miranda for her, her exhortation. and just really ties in with the message and where I'm headed tonight, where we're going to talk about how important prayer is to that very thing of us being assured we have our place waiting for us in heaven, that we're prepared for that day. Uh, in a way of uh, tithes and offering, of course, we still have the tithing boxes at the back, in the back, and uh, if you have something you're wanting to give, then you can drop them off in the tithe boxes and way out. And uh, tonight I'll be bringing a prayer devotion to us, so let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Father, we praise you, God. How glorious it is, Father, to hear those words, the words that you have promised to every believer, God, of a glorious and grand day, Father, Lord. Reminding us that we're just pilgrims passing through this land. But on the other side of this, God, there's the war reward and the promises for those who believe in your son, Jesus. And because of what he did at Calvary, Father Lord, we have the assurance that one day, one day very soon, we'll all make it home to that glorious place that you prepared for those who believe. Father, we thank you for that. That's just a privilege beyond measure that you're giving to your people. And we thank you for that, Lord. I pray that tonight during this time of prayer, as we talk about prayer, that I can relate the importance of prayer and how important it is to our lives. And Father, we give you glory, honor, and praise in all things. And everybody said, amen. And you may be seated. We've been praying now for several years on Wednesday nights. We've dedicated to Wednesday night. We feel that it's that important to do. And we come, and my, have you been faithful to be here? And I'm thankful that you're here, because I know the ones that are here, your heart tells you to pray. You've come with, uh, with your faithfulness and your commitment to come and to pray as a body, to be a part of this body. And we come together, and we join together, and we pray together. And I thank you for being here. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about some things. Some of these things are going to be some pretty basic things that I want to cover about prayer. But I want to uh, bring it to you from the word of the Lord and, uh, and remind us, just like Sister Miranda was reminding us about heaven, I want to remind you about prayer and the importance of continuing to pray. Because 1 Thessalonians five seventeen says we're to pray without ceasing. In other words, we're to never stop. That's our communication line to the Lord. And we, we should pray until we go home to be with the Lord or Christ returns. Paul instructs the Philippians when it comes to prayer in Philippians 4 and 6. He says to be careful for nothing, but in everything. Say everything. By prayer. Say by prayer. And supplication. Just keep repeating this with me. With thanksgiving, let your request be known unto God. Give him praise for that. Praise the name of the Lord. In other words, don't worry about everything, but pray about everything. Give it to God. Praise the name of the Lord. And we need to make our petitions to God. We need to make a request to God. We can come boldly before the throne of grace now because of what Christ did at Calvary and make our petitions known. The second coming of Christ is coming soon. And do you know that prayer is going to play a big role and whether or not you and I are ready for that day. Having a prayer life is going to be very crucial to how we are found at the second coming of Christ. Having a prayer life is a part of being ready 
we are to pray continually that we are ready for that day. And not only pray that we are ready, but that many others are ready too. Because according to Mark 13, 33, 37, listen to what it says. It says, take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to keep watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly will he find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to you all, watch. He's saying watch, in other words, be ready, because church, the master is coming back. You don't know when, so always be ready, watch for it. They have been told by the master that he would return. And we have been told by our master he will return. John 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He says, don't worry, I'm coming back for you. But we don't know exactly when. Matthew 24 and 36 declares, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. He tells us that no man knoweth the day or the hour of his returning. So he says, watch, be ready at all times. Church, it can happen at any moment, and it can happen in the twinkling of an eye. That's just how fast it can happen. In Luke 17, he taught them about what the conditions of the world would be like at his second coming, that when he comes back. In Luke 17, 26 through 30, Jesus describes what the days will be like leading up to the coming of the Son of Man. It reads in Scripture, as it was in the day of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the day of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sowed, they planted, they built. But on the day Lot went out of the Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day that the Son of Man is revealed. He compares the coming of the Son of Man to the flood in Noah's day, in verse 27, and to the destruction of Sodom by fire and brimstone in verse 29. And he says that the days before Christ's coming will be like the days before those two catastrophes were. He's implying people's lives will be busy. We'll be doing ordinary life. Verse 27 says, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Sounds very familiar. Verse 30 says, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, we can expect that most of the world will be engaged in business as usual when the lightning of the Son of Man flashes from the east to the west. Then in verses 31, 33, Jesus warns us not to be like Lot's wife. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. In verse 2, 32, he says, remember Lot's wife. He says, remember the mistake that she made. That is in the hour of crisis. Don't love the world. Don't turn back with longing or you'll be unfit for the kingdom. 
Remember, when the Son of Man comes, he'll separate the sheep from the goats. Even if people are sleeping together or working side by side at the meal, one will be taken into safety, he says, and the other will be left. The one that was taken, in, taken is the one that was ready. The one that's left is the one who wasn't. So Jesus makes it clear that eternal life hangs on whether we are ready or not when he comes. Luke 18, 1 and 8 is really a part of this end time teaching. It closes in verse 8 with this question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will the warnings of Jesus to remember Lot's wife, to keep your heart fixed on Christ, and to not love the world, will these warnings secure the faith of his disciples? Will they endure to the end? Will the Son of Man find us trusting him or just busy securing our lives in this world? I think a natural question disciples would ask, and which we should ask at this point is, how can we endure to the end? How can we make sure that we don't become like Lot's wife, where we are too much in love with this world to go all the way with Christ? The danger we face as disciples of Jesus waiting for his return is stressed even more clearly by Matthews 24, 11 through 13. Jesus says concerning the last days before his coming, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. So in Luke 18 8, Jesus could have asked, when the Son of Man comes, will he find fervent love on the earth? The danger we face is that our faith in Christ and our love for him and for each other will be swallowed up by opposition or by the sheer busyness of daily life in these last days. Where we find ourselves consumed or in with love with the world. So the question is, how can we endure? How can we be found with faith and love? How can we avoid being like Lot's wife and like those who are left in judgment? The answer is pray, pray, pray. Prayer is the answer. Because Jesus tells a parable to give us this answer. It's one of the few parables which he interprets for us so we don't miss the point. The parable is found in Luke 18, verse 1 through 8 in your Bibles. Luke 18:1 tells us the point of the parable, 18:1. It says, Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought to always pray and not lose heart. Jesus' answer to the question how to endure to the end is prayer, always praying. And he says, Don't grow weary in praying, don't lose heart. And the parable goes like this that he used in 18, 2 through 5. Jesus teaches his disciples the very point through this parable. He says in verse 2, There was a certain city, a judge, who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. In other words, because of her persistence, she continually, without ceasing, petitioned him to show justice to her. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Those that are persistent in prayer he's talking about. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he, will he really find faith on the earth? 
Now, this teaching comes as a conclusion to what he taught them in Luke 17. Jesus used this parable in Luke 18 to encourage us to keep on praying, to not cease. A widow comes to an unjust judge and pleads for his help. She is being oppressed unjustly, and she wants the judge to use his authority to seek her relief. Her only source of help is this unjust judge. She comes again and again until he gives her the help she needs just to get her off his back. But the argument of the parable is not that if you can wear out an unjust human judge, you may stand a chance of wearing out God so he helps you just to get you off his back as well. No, no, no. It's quite the contrary. Because that would contradict Luke 12, 32, where Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But even more importantly, in this parable, he's trying to show the disciples that our God, unlike, unlike her unjust judge, our God is a righteous judge. So therefore, everything about our God, our judge, is different than her human judge. Let's, let's look at how so. Jesus tells us two things about the unjust judge in verse 2. That he neither feared God, nor he regarded man. These are repeated in verse 4. Though I neither fear God nor regard man, yet I will vindicate her, he says. In other words, these two marks of the judge are obstacles to his helping the widow. First, the unjust judge has no fear of God and is therefore prone not to help her. This means that the fear of God would prompt a judge to help a needy widow. And if the fear of God would prompt a judge to help a needy widow, then God, who is just, is not like the unjust judge, but is the kind of God whose heart inclines to help those who cry to him. He doesn't have to be begged. It's his desire to help those in need, to show himself strong on their behalf. So when Jesus tells us that the obstacle that almost kept the judge from helping the widow was his failure to fear God, he makes it very clear that the fear of God inclines a person to give heed to cries for help. And therefore, God himself is full of mercy to all who call upon him. Therefore, if a judge who has no fear of God can be swayed by persistent petitions, how much more certain can we be that, be that our God will help those who cry out to him day and night? Hallelujah. The second mark of the judge was that he had no regard for man. The widow was unknown to him. He had no interest in her. The assumption is that if he cared about this widow, he would help her. Does our God have no regard for us? Is he indifferent to our needs? In verse 7, Jesus gives us the answer. He says, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Disciples of Jesus are not in the category of strangers to God. They are his elect. He's chosen them. He has set his favor on them. He has adopted them to be his children. As Christians, we are his children. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are his very elect. He has chosen us. He has adopted us to whereby we can cry out, Abba, Father. As Paul says in Romans 8, 31 through 33, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. There's nothing more precious than to be chosen by God. It means he set his favor upon you fully and freely. He is for you with all of his might. Therefore, Jesus teaches, if an unjust judge can be moved by persistent petitions to help a stranger for whom he has no regard, how much more will God help us 
his chosen ones who cry to him day and night. So that is telling us we must have persevering prayer and faith. So this parable is intended to be an encouragement for us to pray continually until Jesus comes back. When Jesus asks at the end of verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He means, will the Son of Man find that his disciples have kept praying or have they lost heart and given up? So the implication seems to be prayer and faith stand and fall together. If we lose heart and we drift away from prayer, then the Son of Man will not find faith in us when he comes. Faith is the furnace of our lives. Its fuel is the grace of God. And the divinely appointed shovel for feeding the fire is prayer. If you lose heart and you lay down the shovel, the fire will go out and you'll grow cold and hard. And then when the fl lightning flashes from the sky and the Son of Man appears in glory and you're not ready, he will spew you out of his mouth, according to Revelations 3. Two will be sleeping in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. And the test will not be whether you once walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or made a vow or were baptized. The test will be whether you continued in prayer and did not lose heart. Verse 7 says, says that the sign of the elect is that they cry to God day and night. Those who endure to the end will be saved. How crucial is that? We'll, we will not leave prayer behind. That when he returns, he will find us faithful to prayer. Because to God praying is an indication that we still have faith in our God. Hallelujah. If you're saying to yourself that daily prayer for more power to live a fruitful life of Christ-likeness is only for spiritual heavyweights and that you intend to make your way to heaven without it, then you are greatly deceived. Somewhere along the way, someone has put unbiblical teaching to your head that, can you, that you can survive without a prayer life. You're being deceived. It's your most powerful weapon. It's your communication line to God to have a crucial relationship with your Lord and Savior. And how many understand being a Christian requires having a relationship with God? How long would your relationship last with your spouse if you never talked to her? We do more talking in a relationship than we do any other role. And if you want a relationship to die, quit communicating with each other. When the talking stops, the relationship stops. And so it is with God. Without persevering in prayer, faith and love, you become lukewarm. And Jesus commands us in Luke 18, 1, always to pray and not lose heart. Therefore, prayerlessness is disobedience. The word of Jesus to us is that we ought to always pray and not lose heart. If we grow weary and leave off praying, our faith will wither. We should not grow weary in our prayers, church, because God is not like the unjust judge, but more kindly disposed to us. As verse 7 says, he will surely vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night. Do not grow weary in well-doing, because prayer is very important. Always pray. And don't lose heart. Pray without ceasing, the Bible instructs us. I felt it was time to remind us once again why we should continue in prayer. That we should never stop praying. Even if we come to a place that we stop doing this on Wednesday night, we should have learned by now, if you've been a part of this for over four years, that it's important. 
and it's powerful, and it's necessary until the second coming of Jesus Christ to always pray. Why? Because God hears us, and he answers us when we cry out in prayer. And never lose heart. You'll know when you lose heart, it's when you quit praying. It's like a white flag signaling you surrender to your conditions and your situations. And if an unjust judge can be moved by continually petition, how much more can a righteous judge be moved? So keep praying, keep asking, because God answers prayers. I want to ask, answer a question that maybe has been asked or you asked. Why should we pray? I want to give you some answers. It's the delight of the Lord, Proverbs 15 and 8 says. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. All things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. First Samuel 127, Hannah said, For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked for. She prayed for a child, and God answered her prayer and gave her a child. And then it says, To be in the presence of God is why we should pray. Matthews 18, 24, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. To receive things, James said, you have not because you ask not. If we're sick, we should pray. James 5, 13 says, is there sick, any sick among you? Let you let him pray. And then he says, what? And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. So what should we pray for? I want to give some reminders tonight. Sometimes people say, well, I just don't know what to pray or what to pray about. Well, I'm going to help you a little bit here. First and foremost, the Father's will. You should pray for God's will in your life. We must pray for souls to be saved. We must pray for our nation and for our leaders, especially in the hour we're living now. We must pray for healing. James 5.15 says, in the prayer of faith shall save the sick. We must pray to become righteous. Now, why is this so important in our prayer lives? Because James says, the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. We must pray for laborers. In Matthew 9, 37, he says, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, we pray the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. We must pray for forgiveness. We must pray for comfort. Psalms 119 says, let I pray you, your merciful kindness be for my comfort. We must pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It's instructed in Psalms 122 and 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They prosper that love thee. And here's one we have trouble with. Pray for your enemies. Luke 6 and 28, bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. We should pray for our children. Jesus did. Matthew 19, 13. Then the little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray. Pray against your temptations. Matthew 26 says, Jesus said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. We must pray for strength. You must pray that you will be ready. Mark 19. Mark 13, 33, take heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is for the return of Christ. We must pray for one another. We must pray for the interpretation of tongues. 
We should be praying for to receive the Holy Ghost. We should be praying for deliverance. These are several things that we should pray for. And then you have your own personal needs that you should pray for. We should pray for our neighbors, our co-workers. Those who are sick. Those who are afflicted. We could go on and on. But there's so many reasons why we should pray. We should pray to intercede. We should have our personal prayers. These all should happen from now until the return of Jesus Christ or he calls you home. We should continue in prayer. We should pray without ceasing. So praying is not just something you put a little program together and you do it for a while. Here at the palace, we're going to continue to pray because we know the importance of prayer. We have learned the importance of prayer. We've seen what God's done. We've seen prayers that have been answered. God is a God who answers prayers. He promises in his word that, I, that he hears our cries and that he'll answer us. And so we must continue to pray. So that's why we come here on Wednesday nights, Wednesday after Wednesday, and continue to pray. It's one of the big reasons, so that we'll be ready. Because I'm telling you, Jesus is coming back any day. Like the scripture said, nighttime, evening, morning, he's coming back. And it'll be in the twinkling of an eye, and we must pray. Must watch and pray. So tonight, if you would stand with me, I just really felt led tonight to just remind us why prayer is so important. And plus, take a moment to just remind you what we should be praying about. And of everything that I just mentioned, every single one of us ought to have something to pray about just from that list alone. Not counting what you have going on in your own life personally. That needs prayer. Because the scripture said, in all things, remember we, we repeated it, in all things, through prayer and supplication, we should make our petitions known. God cares for us. And we should not get weary in praying. We should not lose heart in prayer. Sometimes we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and sometimes we feel like, man, we're just not getting nowhere. But you got to hang on. Remember, Daniel prayed three times a day for 21 days, and no answer came. And Daniel began to think, why have you not answered me, Lord? And the Lord finally sent an angel of the Lord to answer him and said, Daniel, I heard you the first time. But you've got to understand, these things we pray about cause spiritual warfare to begin. Because God shows up on our behalf. He disperses angels, warring angels to fight for us. And there becomes a spiritual warfare that's taking place. And you just keep praying. And God will take care of it. There be, may be a time that it takes to wear those, those things down off of your life and cause those things to happen. But the main thing you got to do is just trust God. And you believe that when you pray, whatsoever you pray, believing, you shall receive. So I want us encouraged tonight, whatever's going on in your life, or whatever you feel led to pray for tonight, pray. Prayer has got to be a lifestyle. Prayer cannot just be, well, I do that on Wednesday nights. Every day, all day, without ceasing. You know, I have prayed in so many different places. I have prayed when I've seen things. I've prayed when I've heard about things. You know, and I've asked the Lord for things. And I petition God for me. I petition God for my family. I petition God for my friends and my loved ones. 
I've even petitioned God driving down the road and seeing a stranger walking down the road, and I prayed for that individual. I petitioned God when I've been driving down a road and an ambulance flies by because somebody's hurt. Prayer is the most powerful weapon we have, and we've got to learn to pray and trust God and let God have his way. Hallelujah. Every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment.